Matthew chapter 20, starting from verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant and the two brothers. But Jesus called, to, uh, called them to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A couple of weeks back, my wife told me of a conversation she'd had where someone had said to her in the conversation, they thought that Elon Musk was like a god. Now, it's the sort of comment that is memorable. And it turns out that what they really meant was that they thought he had such power and influence, and he didn't seem to be beholden to anyone. They saw him as a great one in the world, and they wanted to be like him. Ambition to progress, getting ahead. Well, that is the world all around us. When I first arrived in London, I began on a graduate scheme. And I remember there were all these talks we'd go to, and we'd be taught how to get ahead in the business. Seminars on how to find a sponsor who would promote your cause and your career in the company. And then all the chat about it with the grads. And perhaps we find it's the same in school or at the school gate. How can we get ahead And in our verses today, we find Jesus' disciples concerned about the same thing. Verse 21, there's a key question. Jesus says to the mother of the sons of Zebedee, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've recently arrived in London, in a new city, beginning a new job starting new studies, or perhaps we've been in London a very long time. This passage raises for us the question, well, what are our ambitions for the next year or two or beyond? And if we confess to be followers of Jesus, the question is slightly sharpened. It's what do we want from life in Jesus' kingdom? We've been in Matthew's chapters 19 and 20 over the last three weeks, and here Jesus is teaching his disciples what his kingdom is like. And to have the kingdom in Matthew, well, that is to surrender to Jesus as Lord, to live for his sake under his rule, 
as we await his coming and the new creation he will bring, the kingdom in all its fullness. And so in these uh, conversations this morning, this is the fourth of four private discussions Jesus has with his disciples as he helps them understand his kingdom. And all through, the reader is being asked the question, well, will we accept this kingdom? Will we accept this kingdom? Or will we harden our hearts as we start to understand what it's really like? We've seen over the weeks, this is a kingdom marked by grace. Grace means the undeserved undeserved kindness of God. Grace means a gift not earned. And so we enter the kingdom by grace. And we see that life in Jesus' kingdom is shaped by his limitless grace. And this morning we see his kingdom is established and our life together is patterned by the grace of God poured out at the cross. Our key verse this morning, if you like, is verse 28 of chapter 20. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, it's seeing this clearly that will shape what we want from life in the kingdom. We might say that what we want is shaped by what we see. And so do we see the cross? And as we see the cross, well, we'll understand the kingdom. And then we'll want to accept it and devote our lives to it. So two points this morning. First, seeing Jesus' kingdom, but not the cross. Well, we'll want Jesus to make us great. Seeing Jesus, seeing the cross, which shapes Jesus' kingdom, we want Jesus to help us serve. So first, seeing Jesus' kingdom, but not the cross, equals make me great. Verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see... We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. The cross, if you like, tops and tails this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. It's there in verse 19. He'll be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And then we saw it in verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this prediction in verses 17 to 19, the third of three predictions about Jesus' death on the cross, which he makes. And in it, we get more detail about his suffering. It's the first one that mentions that it will be by crucifixion. And we read he'd be delivered to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged before being crucified. It's a picture of weakness It's a picture of suffering, and yet it's through the cross that God's grace will flow and his kingdom is established. And so the question is, do we see it? Verse 18, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. You see, it really is possible to see Jesus as king of his kingdom and yet to still get his kingdom all wrong because we don't see the cross clearly. And actually, verse 20 introduces us to a case study of this very situation. Verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked Jesus for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? 
They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Here we meet the the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee, we find out in Matthew 4, are James and John. And for some reason, their mother is approaching Jesus to ask him something on their behalf. Is it pushy mum syndrome? Is it cowardly son syndrome? What's clear is they're all together in it. They're all interested in the answer. And they ask it with real sincerity. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And that word kneel is the word to pay homage. It's what the wise men did when they came to see Jesus with the gifts. James and John and their mother, they recognize Jesus really is God's king. But what they asked for shows that whilst they've got some things right, they still got the kingdom horribly wrong. Verse 21, what do you want? She said to him, say these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. I wonder what our reaction is to hearing that. Perhaps we think this is audacious, rude. Or perhaps we think it's smart, ambitious. Did you notice Jesus' reaction is actually really gentle? He starts to correct them. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. And when we remember that James and John have what they've seen and heard, it's not totally irrational that they ask this. They were with Peter on the mountain, with James and John, as Jesus was transfigured in his kingly resurrection glory. And they were there back in chapter 19 when Jesus had said to them, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones. And here they are on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and they're expecting Jesus to be crowned king any day now. They recognize he's the Christ. But they decide that the best thing to do at this point is then to ask him for a top job in his cabinet. It's as if they're saying, Jesus, you are great. Please make us great too. And they seem to genuinely think that's how the kingdom works. The power, that prestige, that position are what matter. And actually this attitude is not uncommon, even among Jesus' people. It's so prevalent in our world but it soaks into the church. It's the disciple who recognizes that Jesus is powerful and so concludes or is taught that Jesus must be here to help me achieve my personal goals. It's the thinking that assumes God is most glorified in me when I look best to the world. It's the life in the kingdom that assumes things are on track when I've secured the top job and prestige which goes with it, whether that's the workplace or whether that's in the school setting or whether that's in the church. It's the attitude, if you like, that functionally sees Jesus as as a powerful ally in my endeavours to get me ahead. I was chatting to someone this week who told me of a church that gave iPads to its best-performing students, presumably because the leadership understood the kingdom like James and John do. A straight A is a good advert if the kingdom's about getting ahead in the world. I haven't seen an iPad line in the annual accounts here, but actually this passage explains why. And of course that isn't to say that we should not ask Jesus for help, to ask him for help with our work or our exams or in any situation. We've been learning this week God is good. He is generous. We're to come to him like children in dependence 
And he is compassionate and in love will sustain and help us. But when our relationship with Jesus is shaped by a desire to make ourselves great, to see him as our supernatural career sponsor, well, we haven't understood the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink, that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Again, I think James and John are sincere as they say we are able. Whatever they've understood, whether they think Jesus is talking about the cup of responsibility, the sort of the, the tankard at the top table, or the boardroom, boardroom bottle of Beaujolais, well, Jesus continues on to explain. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom, for whom it's been prepared by my Father. See, the cup language here picks up Old Testament imagery. On some occasions, the cup in the Old Testament speaks of blessing. Think of Psalm 23. My cup overflows with joy. But very often it speaks of judgment and suffering. Isaiah 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You've drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Psalm 75. It is God who executes judgment. Putting down one, lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And here the context in Matthew is Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be mocked and flogged and crucified, to bear God's just indignation at human sin. And so the context makes it clear this is the cup of suffering, it's the cup of judgment. And yet Jesus makes this remarkable statement that James and John will drink this cup. And whilst Jesus uniquely bore God's wrath at human sin on the cross, James and John would go on to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In Acts chapter 12, we are told that Herod the Tetrarch killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And John, very likely the John who wrote Revelation, was sent to exile on the Isle of Patmos. Here in Matthew 20, James and John have misunderstood the kingdom. They think it's about power and prestige. But something changed. Something changed in their understanding. And verse 23 begins to show us. You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it's for those who, for whom it's been prepared by my father. Those words, at the right and at the left hand. Well, they come up again in Matthew's gospel in a very deliberate way. When Jesus hung on the cross, Matthew writes, Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. The point where Matthew is showing us that Jesus' kingly glory, his coronation, his inauguration of the kingdom of heaven is at the cross. Jesus wants us to understand the kingdom so that we devote our lives to it. And so he teaches his disciples. And this is our second point this morning, seeing the cross which shapes Jesus' kingdom. Well, that will make us want to ask him to help us serve. Verse 24. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. The other disciples are not happy with what they've heard. And it seems that it's not really because they think that James and John have made a big error. I wonder if it's actually because they rather wish they'd got there first. Because in verse 25, Jesus calls them all to him to teach them. 
Verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus speaks of Gentiles there in verse 25, he's speaking of those who are not God's people, as it were, those we might describe as the world. And so Jesus reminds us of the world's view of greatness. He uses this parallel term um, to emphasize the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The great ones exercise authority over them. This last week, Rupert Murdoch stepped down as head of News Corporation, a man with much power and prestige. And just like many men and women all over the world, a goal to get ahead. The world's ambition to be a great one. But back in chapter 18, Jesus tells us the kingdom of heaven is for little ones. Those who come in humble dependence on him and not of themselves. And so I think Jesus begins to challenge or question our ambition here. We may have great ambitions. Perhaps it's a business or a project or a goal or a gospel ambition. Jesus still wants to check ourselves. Well, is it to make me great? And as I pursue it, do I push others down? Am I over them? Jesus is directing his view of this attitude among his people. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. And this morning, well, this morning could be a good opportunity to just prayerfully consider and repent of attitudes or behavior that's pushing that worldly agenda, pressing brothers or sisters down. It's not the way of the kingdom. Because in the kingdom of heaven, greatness looks like service. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. To be great in the kingdom is to be servant of others. To be first in the kingdom is to be slave of others. It's such a subversive picture of greatness. Willing, costly, humble, lowly service. That is greatness. Life together where there's a genuine concern for the good of one another. A willingness to count costs, to serve, to build one another up in love. Whether it's together in our church family, in our families, in marriages, in our friendships with newcomers, and out into the world as we live and speak for Jesus. It's a deeply attractive picture of greatness. And Jesus is saying, will we accept this kingdom? On a summer camp I helped on uh, a while back, a regular prayer was that the camp would play a part in young people and leaders growing into servant-hearted disciples of Jesus Christ. And so if you're arriving here in London this autumn, or if you've been in London here for many years, what if, above all else, our ambition in the coming year was to grow as servant-hearted disciples? True greatness. As I've been preparing this talk, I've been giving thanks for many examples of servant-hearted love that I have seen and experienced in the church family here, and I know there's much unseen And for many of us this morning, I take it that as we hear Jesus' words, well, actually we're thinking, I really want to grow more like this. What is it that creates a church that wants to serve one another? What is it that builds a culture of sacrificial service? 
a willingness to go out and serve the world with the gospel. What is it that will help us grow more and more as servant-hearted disciples of Jesus that will turn us from make me great to help me serve? Well, it's to see the cross and to see it more and more and more. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those words, even as, show us that Jesus is the example par excellence. Jesus' life and death on the cross are the supreme example of service. And the way Jesus describes himself in verse 28 only adds to the picture. Those words, son of man, is a title Jesus uses for himself, taken from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. And there Daniel saw a vision of one like a son of man, who was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people and nations and languages should serve him. Jesus has demonstrated that he is this son of man. And yet he came into the world with a specific purpose, to serve us. We read those words from Philippians 2 earlier, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. To serve is to step down, For the sake of another, and Jesus stepped down to serve us. We see it at the cross. And yet there's more to see at the cross, because not only is it a perfect example of service, but it's at the cross that Jesus' kingdom is established. And it's through the cross that we enter. And it's as we see the cross that we are empowered to serve. And we see this in the last nine words of verse 28. To give his life as a ransom for many. About half a mile west of here is a park called Postman's Park. I'm told if you've seen the film Closer, it's where Jude Jude Law and Natalie Portman meet, if that helps at all. Um, In Postman's Park, there is a remarkable gallery called the Watts Memorial. And all along it are these plaques, and they're dedicated to acts of heroic self-sacrifice. Men and women who gave themselves to save others. Well, Jesus willingly gave his life as a ransom for many. When a ransom is paid, a hostage is set free. Ransom speaks of a price paid to redeem or buy back another. But the price Jesus paid was not to pay off a kidnapper. Jesus paid a ransom to redeem us from the penalty our sin deserves. Because sin is deadly serious. At its core, it's the attitude of rebellion against our maker we all display. And treating God like this is offensive to him. He is justly indignant with us. We get just a glimpse of it if we imagine a home where the parents bring up their son or daughter with great love and give them everything they need. And yet the child ignores them, enjoys the good gifts and behaves as if they don't exist. Might it be reasonable for the parents to be offended? Justly indignant at this treatment by the one they love. And that is just a small picture of how we have treated our maker. We owe an unpayable debt. And yet the Son of Man came as a perfect substitute in our place to pay it with his life. To drink the cup of God's wrath in our place. To die the just death we deserve. 
We read from Isaiah 53 earlier, speaking of the Son of Man, come as a servant. Isaiah writes, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He gave his life. Isaiah writes, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He gave his life as a ransom. Isaiah again. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He gave his life as a ransom for many. In his book on Matthew's Gospel, J.C. Ryle puts it this way. We are all by nature debtors. We owe to our holy maker 10,000 talents and are not able to pay. We cannot atone for our own transgressions, for we are weak and frail and only adding to our debts every day. But blessed be God. What we could not do, Christ came into the world to do for us. What we could not pay, he undertook to pay for us. To pay it, he died upon the cross. At the cross, it is where Jesus' kingdom is established, and through the cross we enter. And as we see the cross, we are empowered to serve, because the cross is transformational. Many of us will be studying Exodus this year in small groups, and many of us studied it last year. Exodus is the story of God redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt and judgment through the substitutionary death of a spotless Passover lamb. It's a great foreshadowing of the work of Jesus at the cross, the true Passover lamb. But it's a transformative rescue. It's not just a rescue from slavery to to do what we want. Exodus was a rescue from one service to another service. From the oppressive service to Pharaoh, to the blessing of service under the Lord. And through it, God transformed his people's hearts that they would want to serve him. It's a picture of what Jesus has achieved at the cross. A rescue from slavery to sin and death to the service we were made for in the kingdom of heaven. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so the question is, will we accept this kingdom? In verse 18, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And of the three predictions of his death, it's the first one where he says the words, We, and not just I. Because if we will accept King Jesus and his kingdom, well, we must accept the cross and the pattern of the cross. It may be that you're here this morning and you've not yet put your trust in Jesus and his work at the cross. Well, will you consider how the Son of Man has come to serve? Study the cross. Look at its effect in the life of Jesus' people. Will you accept his gift to you? Maybe that like James and John, we still hear this, but really we want to serve our own agenda. We don't quite like this vision of Jesus' kingdom. What do we do? Well, will we look again at the cross and ask him to help us see more clearly our desperate need and how Jesus has served us that we might want to serve others? And for many, well, we are longing to follow Jesus more like this, longing to. And as we walk day by day, Jesus urges us to keep the cross in view. And when we're conscious of where we fail, he calls us to look back at the cross and see what he has done for us 
and to see the forgiveness he has won for us and his invitation to walk on in his service with him as the one who gives grace that we might step down time and time again. And when we experience the blessing of servant-hearted brothers or sisters who understand what this kingdom is like, well, Jesus reminds us it only exists because day by day, week by week, year after year, decade after decade, his death on the cross has been taught and treasured. Because as we see the cross which shapes the kingdom, what we want is transformed from make me great to help me serve. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please grant that each of us here would see the cross more clearly and as we do, that we would understand the kingdom of heaven more fully and that we would grow more and more into servant-hearted disciples of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.